Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we invited Daniel Bessner onto the show. Danny is Joff Hanauer Honors Professor in Western Civilization at the University of Washington, the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Spear and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, a contributing editor at Jacobin, co-host of the American Prestige podcast, and a lively leftist polemicist on Twitter. It was quite the episode. As expected, we agreed on very little between the three of us. The discussion is split into two parts. Become a paying subscriber to hear Shadi and Danny really go at it over the role of democracy in foreign policy, and hear me press Danny about what he really is trying to achieve. On to the show. So one of the reasons I'm excited about this is because, um, Danny, we've, um, I feel like you're my Twitter friend and we've like DM'd over the years and I feel like I know you, but it turns out I don't know you and I've never met you in person. So, I mean, that's the first thing. And I know that you're very funny on Twitter. So I feel like, oh, I like, I like his vibe on Twitter and like his tweets make me laugh. Um, so there's that. But then I realized I don't really have a great sense of where you stand on on certain issues. I mean, obviously, you know, you're on the left um, and uh, that's clear. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but we were both involved um, in the Bernie campaign. And I think the first time I actually kind of registered Daniel Bessner as as a sort of as a name and uh, maybe a metaphor for <laughs> Uh, was That's on when you some... know you've made it when you become a metaphor <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it was on a, an email thread as part of some of the bernie stuff and um yeah anyway so um it, it's interesting and i i bring that up because people don't really understand why i supported bernie and i mm-hmm. think that as time has gone on even sometimes i don't fully understand why I supported Bernie. And I think what's clear in terms of like reading some of your recent work on, especially in regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think that I've diverged considerably from where the left is or has been any number of ways. So I'm excited to actually unpack what is the root of that divergence, let's say. And- um, Sure. Yeah, yeah. So. and Maybe I, don't I guess, I mean, Shadi, just to, to jump in very quickly, I think it's important to perhaps at the beginning of our discussion just mention like what is the left. And it's difficult to really define that in the United States because there really isn't an organized left like there there has been historically in this country or certainly in Europe. So oftentimes we're talking about kind of individual speakers or thinkers like myself. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that because right now the left is pretty inchoate. Um, and that's the moment uh, we're at in terms of our institutional and organizational uh, power. So I just want to say I'm not like speaking on behalf necessarily of any organization, but <laughs> in a reflection of the time, sort of a, a disembodied, free-floating intellectual. <laughs> a metaphor, no, that, as Shadi put it. <laughs> indeed, and that's good exactly, for you. A walking metaphor. <laughs> and that's good for you to to clarify. And I, and I, I don't want to, and I, I really do mean this, I think that our listeners should know that you are, at least from my perspective, one of the most um, important and influential 
young left intellectuals talking about foreign policy today. So anyone who wants to engage in these debates, you know, from my perspective, there's two names in the relatively younger crowd. I actually don't know how old you are, but I assume that we're both millennials. Demir, sadly, yes, yes. is not a millennial. <laughs> he's, an, he's an older person. <laughs> Grizzled Gen but Z I or something. I was born in 84, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I was born in 83. So I had that sense that we're of the same generation, the generation that yeah. sort of came to fruition after 9-11. 9-11 happened my freshman year of undergrad and, and so on. But those two names are basically you and, and Samuel Moyne, who I think are just essential reading when it comes to thinking about what a progressive foreign policy might look like. Um, so that's the nice thing <laughs> that I can say. No, no, I mean, um, but how about this? Maybe no, just no, to kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to orient us, orient our listeners, because they may not be aware, if you had to just sort of articulate your vision and framework on U.S. foreign policy, especially now in light of recent developments, this is, you know, in some ways I would say a hinge point, or at least for some people it is. I mean, I've... I've become more hawkish since, and I was already kind of hawkish, um, since, you know, since the Ru Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I think some people are moving in that direction, but it seems to me that you're kind of holding the fort and saying that, hey, there is still a kind of leftist, anti-imperialist um, position that is moral and principled and worth defending. So maybe just lay it out where, where you stand now um, and how you're thinking about sure. these different topics. Sure, I'll try to do um, my best, and, and then we can dive into specific topics yeah. as you guys want. But essentially, um, I, I try to adopt a historically informed approach to, to U.S. foreign policy, and particularly the era of uh, American hegemony that began after World War II, uh, when the United States, um, I think, really emerged as the world's uh, superpower. Um, I think in retrospect, we could see at the time that it, it was far more powerful than the Soviet Union in a lot of different metrics, and we could talk about that. But essentially, the United States, since World War II, has pursued a strategy that um, has been termed armed primacy, uh, which simply means that the United States argues that both American prosperity and global peace and prosperity depend on it being the military hegemon, uh, depend on it having, you know, the hundreds of bases, uh, overseas bases, depend on it having uh, a huge defense budget, depends on it having a permanently mobilized society that's geared toward war, which wasn't the case before World War II. And if you actually go back to the late 1940s and read what a lot of elites were saying, they were basically making the case for this type of permanent mobilization that, that us three have lived with our entire lives. Um, and based on a historical reading of what primacy has actually meant for the world, you know, the various coups, the various wars, both uh, before and after the Cold War ended, um, I think that U.S. Uh, military hegemony has not been on balance a great thing, uh, particularly when we move our gaze outside what I call the core, the North Atlantic core of effectively Western Europe and the United States and, and Canada. But when you move toward the global south, I think you see that, that dollar hegemony, U.S. military hegemony hasn't been that good uh, for most people. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, the, the type of world I want to build, and I guess philosophically, I'm a secular humanist, I think all human lives are of equal value, regardless of what your citizenship is, uh, will depend on the United States res first restraining its power, you know, or um, associated with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which embraces restraint, but, but ultimately reducing its power, uh, and uh, allowing other nations to basically 
do what they want in a more free way. I, I think that the historical argument in favor of this is pretty clear. Um, and that I think it would be on balance better for the world, particularly as nation state based problems that really did define the 19th and 20th centuries recede into the past and, and more global transnational, international problems, whatever you want to call them, like climate, pandemics, inequality come to the fore. Um, and I, if you're talking about current politics, I think um, Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is a gift to the American military industrial complex, uh, where it essentially allows a type of return to Cold War logic, a, a return to a securitized and militarized logic of America sending arms abroad, uh, of people making a lot of money off of these arms, of an entire techno-scientific structure in Washington, D.C., um, basically getting itself into a, a, its former comfortable position of advocating for the U.S. to, quote-unquote, do something abroad. Um, and so what I try to do is argue and militate against that, that on balance, even if there are difficult short-term decisions to be made, it would be better for most people, both in this country and the world, if the United States did far less abroad. Okay, okay, that's good to start. Um, and just to kind of put my cards on the table, because I'll, I'll assume that not all listeners will be super familiar with me, especially since some of your dedicated fans and lo and followers may decide to tune in. So just, just to be clear, um, so I don't, I don't want to presume that you've, you've, um, read everything I've written, but just so people know, I wrote a piece in the Atlantic a couple of weeks after the Ukraine invasion started with the somewhat suggestive title, there are many things worse than American power, where I basically make the case that American power on balance is better than the alternative. So I think there's, there's obviously a key, key divergence there. And maybe to start along that path, and I should also say, um, and you know, Danny, you might not like this, so please don't hold it against me from like a moral perspective, that I, I, mean, I haven't put out the full argument, but I have definitely said on podcasts and tweeted that I am now open to increasing our military budget where I wouldn't have been previously. In that sense, I've been quote unquote radicalized. So perhaps I'm part of the very problem that you're pointing to that um, I'm sort of feeding into what might become you know, an increase in the, the, the military industrial complex, the return of that kind of mentality and so on. Um, so on, on this question of American power and, and Demir also feel free to jump, jump in here. Um, so, I mean, Demir maybe doesn't, <laughs> I don't want to speak for Demir. Demir maybe well, isn't as concerned. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, if we're like laying out our, our priors, I mean, I, yes. I, I, I think it's it's probably just as well that I say, um, you know, I I anticipate that this conversation will be you guys talking about what is good, um, and I'm and I'm less worried about that. And I, 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 Danny, I sort of want to talk to you about that about the priors and how that works out, uh, because I don't know. Sure. I, I guess I, I I come at it from a you know, much more Slavic and tragic sort of view. And I, you know, yes, be, would be course. keen to where, talk where you stand is where you sit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a conversation to be had there as well. Uh, but Shadi, go ahead, make your point about, about, uh, about the good in any case here and your, your arguments. Yeah, Cause I think so there's I a think, lot to do there. So I think where we, where we do overlap and also we had um, Glenn Greenwald on, um, you know, at the start of, at the start of the war as well. And that was interesting. 
but I respect Glenn, and that's why we've had him on the show twice um, to some people's um, dismay. <laughs> but um, so where I overlap with Glenn and, and I think you as well is um, I think that the U.S. has a pretty horrific record in its foreign policy, particularly as it relates to the Middle East. And, um, you know, as someone Latin that's America where my, hasn't been so great either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is true. So I was about to say, too, that during the Cold War, obviously, in terms of trying to overthrow various regimes and Chile being... Or NAFTA. Suppose, NAFTA hasn't been so kind to Latin America either. That's post-Cold War. Okay, I, so I don't... <laughs> I'll let you go. I'll let you go. Sorry. No, but you lost Sorry. me a little bit there. So I'm not as economically oriented, and we can get to that because I think that's a big part of your argument. I'm sort of agnostic on things like NAFTA, and I don't claim to be an expert one way or the other. But um, yeah, so here's what I would say. We've done a lot of bad things in the Middle East, in Latin America, in a particular period, and to some degrees to this very day. And maybe that's also an issue of debate. But um, but you say, so I'll, I'll just bring up something that you said in your conversation with Glenn Lowry, which we'll include a link to. It's very, very interesting. And I, I love your dialogues with Glenn on his podcast. It's just a model of principal disagreement and laying out one's priors and so forth. But one maybe more specific point is you said that Russia probably wouldn't have invaded Ukraine in the early 2000s or in the 1990s. It's only It was only willing and able to invade Ukraine because U.S. power has declined in relative terms. And that to me, in a very in a very obvious way suggests that the decline of American power isn't necessarily good. If America hadn't been declining, Russia wouldn't have invaded, if I understand your argument correctly. But maybe we can just start with that because that's a very specific sure. illustration of how adversaries are emboldened when they see American weakness and then they end up doing terrible things and committing atrocities as we are seeing in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, I would never deny those atrocities or the brutality and um, awfulness of, of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, just to make that clear. <laughs> so I guess it's, uh, you have to make things like that clear. My, my simple point was that I, I don't think um, an era of incredible American power, uh, the type of thing that existed in the 1990s where the G7 controlled, I believe the statistic is something like 66 or 67 percent of world GDP, um, I think it's now something around 30%. It's not, maybe those precise numbers aren't right, but the trend is, is something like that. Um, no, I don't think Putin would have invaded Russia. So there's a couple of things that I would say to-, to I, Ukraine, I to invaded question. Ukraine. Oh, yeah, sorry. I don't think Putin, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Putin would have invaded uh, Ukraine. Russia would have invaded Ukraine. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things I would say. Um, First is that there's just the empirical question of whether the type of power that the United States had in 1945 and 1991 is ever going to be seen again in world history. I would argue that those were very unique circumstances in 1945. Effectively, the most developed countries um, had been ruined in war. And in 1991, the United States' closest peer competitor effectively disappeared from the scene overnight, uh, allowing the United States to have 
an enormous amount of power that that I don't think we'll see something like that happen happen again in the future, in the near future, in the predictable future, roughly predictable. Nothing's predictable, but I think everyone, I hope everyone will take what I mean in, in the future. So there's that, just that. I don't think it's really possible again. So in some sense, I view that argument as tilting at windmills. Um, but again, it also depends on what um, time frame you're adopting. So if if you want to make an argument that the United States should intervene in every atrocity that happens at every moment around the world to prevent short-term consequences, um, I, I understand that. I, I see the appeal of that morally. But one could, I think, make an equally moral and ethical claim that if you take a more medium or long-term perspective, that the type of world that we need to be building toward will not be organized around the singular hegemonic power that you just said has done a lot of uh, bad in the past, but will necessarily be um, more multilateral and more organized around um, cooperation, uh, even with states that American policymakers might not like, with, of course, the caveat that um, American policymakers have been quite fine with aligning with Saudi Arabia or Egypt or other non-democratic or anti-democratic countries when it, when it served their perceived interests. Everyone knows hypocrisy is not a particularly interesting argument, but it is there. So that, that's how effectively how I would answer that, that in the short term, I think the, the reduction of American power will, like you said, resulted in really awful things. But you also have to take other perspectives when you're making policy, particularly given the light that I think that um, many Americans, and Shadi, you could tell me if I'm wrong, are basically in hock to the progressive era fantasy, literally the turn of the 20th century, that you'll be able to manage politics, manage international relations like it's a great game of risk. And I would just say as the historicist, you're never able to manage any of these things. These things always have unpredictable consequences. People always point to the, you know, the funding of the Mujahideen in the 1980s, et cetera, et cetera. This is something that's repeated over and over again. So I think the, 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 the force that is made in, in favor of, you know, sending arms to Ukraine, and constantly increasing military budgets for Ukraine and military aid, um, don't take account of the criticism that I just made in really any way, shape, or form. Which is typical. It's a DC. You know, everyone's worried about tomorrow, not not twenty years from now. But Dan, Danny, that's <laughs> you know, I I I think it's a great answer. Uh, I first I, I'll say I agree that you know we we we're no longer in the unipolar moment, um, and it's good to even think of the you know. Even even in 1945, uh, it was a kind of unipolar moment until the Soviets caught up. Though again, debatable how much they caught up. Did they though? No, Did no. Again, I'll I'll, I'll even grant you that one. <laughs> though there's, I think that there's a lot of good history and and stuff to talk about perceptions and how likely that was. You know, I don't know. I, I was just actually oddly enough, I I I not even in preparation for our interview. I was on the plane from Berlin reading uh, um, uh, Jack Snyder's book about how empires. Mis, uh, misjudge and and mis, misunderstand threats. So you know, I mean, it's on my mind. But let's just let's just assume that you know, at least there was a unipolar moment before uh, the elites really sort of woke up to what was perceived as you know the the rising threat. Um, but but what's interesting there in in how you framed your response, and maybe this will help us sort of start unpacking some of where you're coming from. Um, you have an idea of building a better world. Um, and uh, the building of the better world happens through restraint, as you said, and the rest of that. And you're trying to build a world that is multilateral and based on cooperation. Um, how does it, what are, what are the, some of the antecedents that you need for cooperation to spring up in the world beyond just American disarmament? Um, basically, uh, 
Will it arise normally because rational actors? Will it arise normally because democracy and democratic peace theory? Uh, is there a trend towards democratization that America is hampering by being more active and basically democracies would emerge more if we did less? Is that part of the underlying theory of this like building cooperation in one, the future? One question. What do you mean by democracy voting? No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, I, I didn't mean that. I meant, I meant basically, I was sort of giving you what I was trying to brainstorm, what you meant by cooperation in the world. Will it come out from just states, be they democratic or non-democratic, uh, rationally behaving and, and finding ways through institutions to, co to cooperate? Or is it that uh, there's a process of democratization that will overcome the world and then democracies are better able to cooperate. I, I, I don't understand this I, I notion mean, of a cooperative world. Yeah. I, I mean, so I would ask you what your priors are, because it sounds to me like your priors are realism um, and sort of, do you have a degree in political science? No, I'm a total dilettante. I have a, I have a master's in, you know, something politically science-y, but no, I don't have a, I don't have right, a- Right, right. So, I mean, degree. I would just say that a lot of, I mean, like, I, I would say that just fundamentally, it sounds like a lot of the categories you're working with are, are these categories that were developed between the 1930s and the 1960s to explain international relations. Sure. And they assume things like states are going to naturally expand and, and that states will naturally fill power vacuums and every state is ultimately bent on world hegemony because I think people, literally the people who developed how we think about international relations, people like Hans Morgenthau, you know, people like Arnold Wolfers, people like John Hurt, we're essentially universalizing um, the experience in particular of the 1930s and the first half of the 20th century, making them laws of international relations. Um, so I would just say that a, a lot of the ways we talk about international relations, I just fundamentally think we have to adopt a more historical approach to them. And that like the, the power vacuum is, I think, a very clear one. The idea that like the Mersheimer idea that states mechanistically expand because everyone's concerned with survival is, I think, ahistorical. Um, so I, I don't have like a one, two, three step plan. But I guess my theory of the case is that you not, that things are better worked out by people who actually have stakes in the regions in which they are um, so that, you know, people are best uh, things are best worked out by by countries that are actually in East Asia or actually in Latin America or actually in the Middle East. And when you have a power, an imperial power like the United States coming in from outside, it prevents effectively organic developments on the ground to proceed as they do. I don't have a theory of democratization. Mm -hmm. I would also question, like, what do you actually mean by democracy? Because I would say in the United States, we have a very minimal understanding of what democracy is, which, again, emerges from a political theory that is actually quite skeptical of public opinion. And we have actually created a state in this country, like the national security state that effectively prevents ordinary people from actually exerting an influence on politics. So I certainly don't have a theory of democratization, but I guess I do have a philosophy where countries should be able to decide um, what type of political regime they want to live under. I mean, and it shouldn't be up to the United States to decide whether that is or is not legitimate. Well, so, you know, I mean, again, I'll, I'll, I'll let Shadi handle the democracy stuff. I am, I am deeply agnostic about it. I'm not like a a democracy person, I was just sort of teeing it up there for Shadi to go at it with you. But, uh, you know, and yes, I am generally sort of a realist, but unlike a restrainer, I'm much more of an offensive realist is really when it comes down to all of this. So, you know, yeah, you, you nailed me pretty quickly and easily on that. But the question is then on the localism, um, you know, 
and I again, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of this approach that you champion of, of going at these things historically. But the question always becomes, in any situation, compared to what, and as you said, in, in, under what time frame? So you know, take, yeah, sure. take, Ukra- so think- take Ukraine for example. Let me just push you on that uh-huh. because it's a, it's a, sure. you know, it's a localized conflict. It's actually a conflict that goes back, uh, you know. Uh, to the time of the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Empire sure, and, to the ninth Russia. century. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you can you can take it all the way back and 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 all sorts of uh, contingencies and and local things and you know war is one of these things that that persists in in the settling of these sorts of things. So again, it's it's my 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 press to you is is maybe you're not optimistic. Maybe I just misread when you say build a better world around cooperation. But where's this? Where's that come from? Again, again, you don't have to have a full theory of it, but. If I scope out and try and look out, you know, the grander sweep of history doesn't necessarily fill me with any kind of optimism with a lack so of hegemony. So what have people fought over? Hmm. What have people fought over traditionally? Land, the, women. Land. <laughs> I think less so. Uh, the, uh, so I would say that... Do people Religion, ideology. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would say that's usually not a the major cause, but that reveals my Marxism. I would say that's usually a superstructural cause. Sometimes... There are, I mean, let's like, so let's go back to like the Crusades, right? That's like the classic, like ideology drives war thing. I mean, I I think there's been a lot of compelling scholarship to argue that it actually had to do with like land distribution and things along those lines. So I guess my also first principle is I don't think ideology is actually a crucial driver of of war. Like fundamentally, it is a, it is one of the factors in there, but you know, historians have to rank causal hierarchies. I, I would not generally put it at the top. I don't think that's why the United States fought the Cold War. For instance, I think that was far more about American, uh, the search for American primacy. Um, but I would say, and, and you know, this is, this is something that is still being worked out in, in, in discussions like this, is I don't think people need to fight over land in quite the same way as a whole. I'm not saying that this will never happen, but I don't think that wealth and things like that are as linked to land because of things like the Green Revolution, which essentially allowed us to pack a ton of calories into food. You know, I think people fought over things like that. I think you'll see a lot of war right now due to climate change and access over water resources. You're going to see a lot of that. But then then the argument is, then, then why are we talking about Ukraine when we should be talking about this global system? So I, I would say that the reasons that people go to war, um, even though there are historical, you know, trends, absolutely, is that the experience of industrialization is fundamentally different than, like, the, 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 what the Delian League was doing in Thucydides or something like that. And we need to take a more historical approach, not only in examining antecedents, but in examining what changed. So both continuities and change. Mm. Okay. So, well, first of all, I do appreciate, Danny, that you basically just called out Demir for reading Dead Old White Men who were alive from 1930 to 1960. That's all I do. These are the people I study. I <laughs> yeah. mean, I know I know them better than anything. I've read everything these people have ever written, and they're brilliant. You wrote a book about one they, of them. I wrote a book about one of them. But they're, the, 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 the universalizing of the 1930s is just what has happened in American IR thinking, and it's just not accurate. China is not Nazi Germany. The Soviet Union was not Nazi Germany. Uh, interesting. Okay, we're going to have to unpack that too. I'm going to add that to our list. This okay. list is growing, Shadi. We're going to be here for <laughs> weeks. Go on. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try my best to get to the what I think is maybe part of the heart of the matter. Um, well, first of all, I should say that um, it's interesting that you take issue with a minimalistic conception of democracy. I mean, that's very much my position and I have a book coming out where I basically 
lay out democratic, what I call democratic minimalism as an organizing principle for our foreign policy. Um, but that's a, that's a different story and maybe that's time, that's a subject for another debate. But so, okay, I think, so the reason that I supported Bernie and you mentioned Egypt and Saudi Arabia was because, you know, because of similar concerns about our, you know, our conduct in the global South and how we support authoritarian regimes, so on and so forth. But I think that you can start from that premise and come to two different conclusions. I think your conclusion is to say that it's better for the U.S. to just stop being involved, to stop intervening, because wherever we do, we make things worse. The empirical historical record suggests that, you know, that that's that tends to be what happens. Right. My position, I think I come to the a somewhat different conclusion, which is that, yes, we have done all these bad things. My proposal or my quote unquote solution, it's not really a solution per se, but it would be better to say, well, American power is a fact. We're not really likely to get to a point in the foreseeable future where leftist restrainers um, control US policy. So US power is still going to be wielded regardless of what we want. I would much rather wield that power in the service of our ideals and close the gap between our rhetoric and our actual policy. So in other words, I would like us to get aggressive with countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and use our leverage. And so, for example, the fact that Saudi Arabia's military can't run without U.S. logistical support, maintenance, spare parts and so forth. I would like us to basically say to the Saudis, listen, if you want to continue getting advanced weaponry from the U.S., if you want to continue having this U.S. security umbrella, then you have to get your shit together and stop and stop exacerbating a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, stop supporting um, authoritarian regimes across the region. Um, and the list is actually- Why not quite just not give them the weapons? That. Well, so, but if we're, but if we're giving, yeah, I, I'm actually fine with that, but there has to be a reason that we're not giving. So we're currently giving them these weapons, right? I would like to tell them like, we're not feeling comfortable with this relationship. You're doing a lot of terrible things with the weaponry that we give you. So we have to reassess our relationship. And this is these are the benchmarks that are important to us. Some of them have to do with our values and the fact that Saudi Arabia is working against American values throughout the Middle East and beyond. And also, I would argue, against our interests. I mean, when when the Saudi crown prince kidnaps a Lebanese prime minister, I would like to humbly suggest that that is not just against our values, but also against American strategic interests in the Middle East, because I don't think it's realistic to go from where we are now to completely cutting off all military support. There are steps in between. And but, but I why? think that if I mean, we, we have didn't leverage, have an SEC. <laughs> We didn't have an SEC in 1931. We had one in 1933. I, I don't know. I just don't buy this realism argument. That's just for, I mean, no, but I, I don't have to make a career in D.C. So, like, I think that's a lot of it is, like, this sort of career incentives of Washington, D.C. force one to, to make arguments about realism. But everything's realistic. We control our own but, history. But, okay, but I'm definitely, I'm the last thing I am is a realist. Like, I'm very much an, and I mean, uh, like I'm kind of like an ideologue on foreign policy. So let me just, so 
I basically think that we should be using our leverage with Saudi Arabia to punish them if they don't open up their political system, if they don't if they don't stop doing things that are morally abhorrent. And I don't think a realist would feel very sympathetic to this idea of let's. No, I, let's I wasn't hold using realism in the IR, IR sense. I was using realism in in just like the common sense, like. <laughs> who decides what's politically okay. real? I mean, it seems like oh, very oh, okay. easy not to give Saudi weapons. Yeah, that seems like a very but, okay. easy thing unless you don't want the military-industrial complex to be pissed off, and then we get into a discussion of the American political economy. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Here, here's okay. A, let me let me let me frame it a different way because I think it's a it's a good point, Shadi. Like, well, why do we need to have any influence in the Middle East? Why not just be like, you get no weapons, go fend for yourself, Saudis. What are the interests? We okay, don't but, need to be influenced in the Middle East. We should absolutely have spent the last 70 years investing in alternative energy. That's the best Middle Eastern policy. Okay, okay, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I don't see any plausible scenario where the U.S. decides to basically stop everything it has been doing in the Middle East because there are interests that are implicated. And and um, you could say whether the same about agree- slavery or the New Deal or any other huge shift in America. America is actually interesting because more, more than other North Atlantic countries, we actually do make gigantic shifts. It's like, oh, now there, there's no welfare state. Now there's a welfare state. We had slavery. Now we don't have slavery. I think that's actually unique to America. Other countries are a bit different. But like, if, if you start making it realistic and treating it like it's realistic in the common sense sense of the term, I don't see why we just need to stop. We could just stop giving them weapons. What the hell do we need to give Saudi Arabia? Weapons? Okay, but you would need you would need to have a con- you would need Congress to be on board with that. I just don't see how that happens in terms of the legislative process. So, right, so then we process. get to the domestic political economy, right? And the, and then this is the whole problem. This is like the, the inequalities engendered by a capitalist nation state. And then I, I agree ultimately. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. But like foreign policy is actually one of the areas where there's not that much domestic interest in it. There's, I mean, there's not that much public interest in it. There's a ton of well, domestic interests that are making money off of things that want things to stay the same. So, but so, then that, now we're getting okay, into so, questions about political economy. Okay. So let me let yeah. So point taken. Let me so let me make the argument a little bit differently then. If we, first of all, I do think that we have um, a moral interest in the Middle East to help um, Arab countries become less authoritarian and more democratic. What does that mean, because, though? I mean, this is, these categories what, are so historic. I mean, like the, the very category well, of authority created in the Jim Crow um, United States. I mean, it's just so, I don't, as a historian, it's just so silly okay, to me to treat these But it's a continuum. We, we, we can make determinations about countries becoming somewhat more democratic or somewhat more authoritarian. So what about our mass incarceration? What about mass incarceration in the United States? No, no, I'm talking about Arab countries. Sorry, I was just talking about like, for example, like Egypt during the Arab Spring when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power through free elections, Egypt had become somewhat more democratic than what it previously was. Whatever you think about the Muslim- voting. Or, or, rep, or you know, representation, voted. accountability, um, the fact that people could actually express their views publicly without fear of government persecution for the most part, at least, I mean, in, in some sense, it was the golden age of peaceful intellectual combat. It was very frightening for a lot of status quo elites because people were actually expressing their views openly for the first time in modern Egyptian history. So the fact that you had this vibrant intellectual and political scene where people were competing and putting out their ideas from far left to far right, 
Um, and people Why were able to protest. Why is that an American protest. interest? Well, because if we as Americans believe in democracy and that believe that democracy is better than the law. we clearly don't. I mean, any, any like glance <laughs> well, I, at history shows we don't give a shit about that. I oh, mean, come on. Well, I mean, like overthrowing a million countries, funding all these anti-democratic movements around the world. I mean, that's just not something that's just not real. It's not something no, but as, ever okay, give a but shit about. Me as an individual American, and I know many other Americans who share this view, we do think that our ideals should be reflected to some degree in our foreign policy. We don't live up to those ideals Who defines what the American inter- ideal is, though? Who defines what an American ideal what is? What gives basically people in the military intellectual complex the legitimacy to decide what an American ideal is? Or the well, I mean, I disagree. appointed by politicians? But Danny, you have a theory okay, of well, this. You have a theory of this. I, in one of the articles, uh, I don't know if it was in the... Was it in your review of the Moyne book, or maybe it was on on, on the Substack uh, that sometimes you, you write on? Uh, you make it. You you say that you yourself uh, approach these questions. Uh, you know that you maybe instrumentalize and maybe with uh, with with a bit of a scare quote. You do talk about interest, and you feel like there is a politics here, and you think that even though you despair of the fact that the American people uh, end up being more selfish. Uh, on these things and aren't moved by, you know, global sort of concerns. They're not uh, perhaps uh, as, I don't know, uh, they don't share your, your view of the equal worth of every human life. They, they value their citizens more than others. But you feel like there's a, a process there of, of convincing, presumably, right? You mean like the Deweyan educationist approach? Well, no, you're personal. But yeah, sure, Deweyan educationist approach. But you yourself seem to have laid out uh, your own approach to this. I mean, how do you conceive of your role politically in domestic political economy? What's your role as an academic? Are you just a critic or are you moving the needle somehow towards your set of values and educating? Well, yeah. well, I would say, okay, well, well, I would say like the big problem that I confront in, in the domestic sphere is this accretion of institutions that have become the American state um, and which, you know, everyone knows about the Senate's Everyone knows about the Supreme Court. I mean, these are fundamentally anti-democratic minoritarian institutions. But besides that, I think when we're com- talking about the creation of foreign policy, we've essentially created organizations like the National Security Council, the Council of Economic Advisors. You know, the White House itself has increasingly centralized foreign policy literally in the White House itself, in addition to like the the, the, the plethora of think tanks that in which people cycle in and out of government. So I just think like in, in any substantive sense, American foreign policy making is not democratic, and most American policy making isn't democratic at all. Uh, at all, I mean, look at the response to the George Floyd protest. Uh, how many police departments have been defunded? Oh, wait, they've all been refunded or um, increased funding. So I would say, when we're talking about like spreading democracy around the world, it's, it's almost absurd to, to do that when we have the actual country we actually live in right now. Okay, okay, but. A couple things. I mean, so for example, on not to get sidetracked, but on defunding the police, just so I can understand what you mean by democratic a little bit more. It seems from all the survey research that I've seen that a majority of Americans on the national level, but also in specific localities or states don't actually support defunding the police so there is a kind I, we of, shouldn't get into this because this okay, is like now okay. we're talking about survey questions and oh, how okay, it's fair, asked fair enough, and who enough. answers survey questions and just okay. i'm skeptical <laughs> of, of that entire methodology to say the least <laughs> okay okay fair enough so we, we we don't have to delve into that um so just to clarify like where i'm coming from because you said like who decides these things 
I, first of all, don't consider myself part of the military policy complex. The, the, the prospect that a Biden administration would consider someone like me for a position, it's never something that, as far as I can tell, is or will be plausible. And, um, and also the fact that I didn't care enough about that to kind of be part of one of the Biden working groups, even after, you know, so I, yeah, I support I Bernie. I said no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I supported Bernie knowing that, like, I, I had no, I had no um, thought that he would actually have a chance of winning. So when it came close to him winning the primary, I think a lot of us were like, oh my God, wait, this might actually happen. But anyway, um, so I, I'm, I'm someone, I'm ultimately only responsible for myself. So when I, I know that a lot of Americans don't Spoken care. like a true American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I want, like, I'm, I write and I speak about these topics in public and I realize no, that I'm, I'm, I'm in a minority. I'm just kidding. Oh, I know, I know. I can't do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm in the minority in the sense that my side lost the debate about democracy promotion in the Middle East. We turned away from that first in the Bush administration after there was like one year of like a half-hearted freedom agenda. Then we kind of went right back to supporting authoritarian regimes. Obama was vaguely open to some of these ideas for six months in 2011. Then he went back to supporting authoritarian regimes. Biden doesn't even give a shit when it comes to the Middle East, so on and so forth. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not representing any kind of like national movement, but I do I do want my view of a moral interest, of a moral commitment, of trying to help Arabs and Muslims live freer lives, that they have at least some say in their own destinies, that they're not forced to fight on two fronts. Because right now, if you're an Egyptian and you want to have more political openness in, a, in, a, in any kind of minimal sense, you have to fight not only against your own regime, but against the U.S. that's supporting your regime and helping your regime stay entrenched for God knows how long. Um, and 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 just on the point of like, let's say Saudi, why don't we just cut aid to Egypt and then get out? Why don't we stop giving weapons to Saudi Arabia and get out? Well, the risk there is that if we actually did do that, it wouldn't actually help Saudi Arabia become more politically open or even somewhat vaguely more democratic, they would continue being authoritarian and then they would get, they would fill the gap by getting support from China, Russia, whatever it might be. Um, so if we're going to withdraw or threaten to withdraw support or withdraw weaponry, let's at least use that leverage to push them in the right direction. Because if we just if we just get out completely and there's no and there's nothing beyond that, there's no strategy, then Saudi Arabia is still going to be brutal to its own people. So if the goal is to actually get um, Saudi Arabia to be less repressive towards its own citizens, or we can say the same for Egypt, Jordan, you know, the whole list actually, because they're actually, we're talking about most of the countries in the Middle East here, then, um, then I think we have to be re quote unquote realistic because I actually want to see policy change. I actually want to see people's lives get better. Well, I mean, if that's the case, and why not focus on redistributing wealth and power from the global north to the global south? That's far more likely to engender the sorts of changes that you're speaking of than focusing on basically, I guess, freedom of speech 
which will make intellectuals' lives better. I absolutely agree. But if we're talking about the masses of people, I mean, it's just like the, since the colonial era, the global north has just dominated and, and rapaciously extracted from the global south. So to me, if that's your genuine goal, then, then I feel like there's better ways to attack it. Okay, but Much if you, ways, um, in fact, <laughs> but the only way, the only way people, so it, let's say we're talking about any kind of polity. I mean, if Egyptians are unhappy with X, Y, or Z issues, democracy, if at least if it's, if there are free and fair elections, gives them a chance to vote in people who have a different view on these fundamental questions. So I would, I would, but that's not how it works. I mean, I mean, that's just not how, how, how history works. I mean, I think if history has shown anything is that like the very minimal American understanding of democracy has actually led to the erosion of what, what I would say is more genuine democracy, social democracy, economic democracy, things like that, that allow people to live, to, to live better lives. I mean, it's in fact, if we're talking about this country, it's only in the 1930s uh, in the face of, of, of fascism abroad that American intellectuals actually define democracy down to just mean voting. And I would see the history of the last 100 years has just shown how that very, you know, jaundiced, if you will, uh, uh, definition of democracy does not actually lead to the sorts of things that, that you want very clearly. It's not even a question. Okay, to be clear, I'm not just saying, I'm not only talking about elections. I'm talking about voice, accountability, responsiveness, representation, the idea that people should have a right to recourse if things in their country are going bad or terribly, that they can actually have avenues to express their grievances and dissatisfaction and then articulate those and organize accordingly. Do you what, think we have that here? Um, not in any kind of perfect or ideal sense, but not even yes. a close sense. I mean, study after study shows that there's absolutely no connection between public opinion and elite policy when elite policy and capitalist interests disagree with public opinion. We don't even have that here. Oh, I think well, that's some of that's the nature of modernity a little bit, right? When you have these like a massive states. What winds up happening is you wind up having basically accruing an elite governing class and a largely disenfranchised public. That's what we have here. Okay, but so Danny, you know, I mean, I you know, listening to you, and I, I, I wonder maybe then I'm just still trying to discern uh, which way uh, you know you would like to see history move, and maybe maybe you could walk me through then. I, I, I'm starting to imagine that maybe the ideal is the state withering away. I feel like you may have even alluded to something like that in the past. Is that is that where we're headed towards in an ideal world? No, if, no? that's not my okay, idea. We're not either. heading off. I mean, I mean, what 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 is it? You know, I it's it's because you know you keep coming back to this, and this is fine attack on Shadi to say, well, you know, we suck too. But I I don't I'm not that bothered by that. So the question is, is what do you want? Um, I, I mean, I think we need to redistribute wealth and power in this country, okay. and I think we need to start from there. And then I guess if, we, if I was trying to think in terms of international relations, I think we should focus on having some form of genuine redistribution within North America, then keep on expanding that outwards uh, as much as is feasible without, you know, causing too much havoc and chaos. Uh, and then actually getting genuine democratic representation where it's not just the rich who have their ideals listened to. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, and then the, the mechanism for the redistribution, again, just, you know, to just roll back to the, the other part, to this cooperation. So we start first by reforming ourselves in the United States. Uh, yes. we, we become, you know, truer to not just our founding ideals, but to a set of social justice ideals that, you know, we- No, can, not we social can, justice, not the valence, social democratic. Social democratic, fair. Socialists, so, let's just socialists. Fine, let's just say social, a more socialist, a more socialist direction for the country. And then the, uh, does the United States then 
need socialist partners in other countries to do cooperation or does socialism also arise in partner countries to then other rich countries well now we're talking well no i mean we're talking on predictable scales of time fine so i i i do think that um if america for example uh shoddy you mentioned earlier that like america was only bad to latin america during the cold war if it stopped doing things like helping fund the drug war um, and things like that, it would free up other countries in Latin America to pursue their own policies. And we'll have to re- react to that, respond to that, see how it develops. But in, in my ideal world, you'd see more redistribution of wealth and power throughout the entire Western Hemisphere. Um, I, I am a political citizen of the United States, so I can't speak for other countries. We do live in a world of nation states. I, I, I am aware of that. And then hopefully, if humanity moves in what I would consider a positive direction, we'll be able to stave off, you know, catastrophic climate change. Um, what I actually think is going to happen, <laughs> you know, Marx has a great quote, I, I think it's in the manifesto where he says, we'll, we'll either, you know, become socialist and communist, or we'll, we'll, we'll suffer the mutual ruin of the contending classes. I think the mutual ruin is more likely than not at this point. But I got to strive for the better world. Okay, okay. So just uh- so first of all, I, I did not, I don't think I said that America stopped doing bad things <laughs> in Latin America and only did them in the Cold War. I would say, I think what I was trying to get at is we were much worse during the Cold War. I and, don't know, drug war is pretty bad. <laughs> okay, but I mean, just in terms of overthrowing regimes, at least we did help some democratic transitions in places like Peru, Argentina, Brazil in the mid to late 80s. We got, you know, we got around to putting pressure on some of our former authoritarian allies. We've also did some of that in Asia with South Korea and the Philippines. I, I just mean that there was a trajectory where if we look at a continuum, we did improve in terms of putting pressure on authoritarian regimes. But we don't have to get into all the specifics. I just want to clarify like what I meant by that. But the more relevant... so. Well, Specifics well, so, aren't as clean as that. Let me just, as a historian, underline that. <laughs> it was a lot of like doing what was perceived in U.S. capitalist interests in all of those cases. It was not so bad? out of the okay. of our heart. Okay, but what's well, so bad about- Because capitalism destroyed the world. Capi- Americans consume, what, what is it, 25% of world energy? That's why capitalism's bad, because it's cooked the planet. Because we don't have a we don't have any sort of natural relationship to our environment in any way, shape, or form. The whole thing of permanent growth is actually literally cooking the planet. Uh, we don't distribute resources efficiently or effectively in this country whatsoever. Instead of giving people health care, private capital invades in WeWork. I mean, capitalism is, is is from my perspective not very good for the world. Okay, but if we end up supporting democracy because it aligns with capitalist interest, like it's a band aid. I, I mean, it's a band aid on a cancer. Okay, but I'm if if people end up doing the right thing, i.e., what I think is in in our in our what what I consider to be morally compelling and morally just, and they, they get there because some other things are influencing them, and they're like, oh well, this is actually good for whatever. I mean, that that's still better than the alternative of supporting authoritarian regimes. If I had to choose between, I don't think it matters because we're cooking what, the planet. I mean, like it doesn't what? matter really. But it, it matters it for the people really who matter. live under these regimes. If there's if there's greater political openness and, and more demo- and greater democratization, that's helpful for the people who actually live in those countries because they don't have to worry about waking up to a dawn raid by the police because they said something wrong. I mean, that seems like yes, pretty agreed. tangible. I, I, 
Yes, I agree that 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 is helpful. But then again, if if it comes at the expansion of these American business interests that are just extracting all these resources to be converted into energy that cooks the planet, it's helpful in the short term. But ultimately, if we're talking about these larger issues, it doesn't really affect them. But yes, I I, I think it's horrible. I think that sort of authoritarianism is absolutely horrible. I'm an intellectual. I love freedom of speech. Okay. Okay. But Danny, let me again. I'm I'm so I'm 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 still so interested. So as a Marxist, then uh, the the progression of you know. Uh, not progress, progress like the social evolution, the development, right? Again, it's been a while since I've 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 read yeah, my. I'm, Marx. Not, I'm not a Marxist in that sense. In <laughs> no, like but, the, but, the, but 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 I mean, but it is antithesis. No, no, no. But but there I mean. is an interesting thing, though. I mean, you you have a, an idea that that capitalism at some point, you know, in an ideal world, you you sound pretty pessimistic about it, but you'd like to see it evolve into or you know change into something like socialism. You said like a socialist society. How does a socialist society deal with fellow you know, states, which you also admitted sort of you can't get around in this point, that are feudal and that kind of feudal approach to things um, or states that will necessarily, you know, perhaps get to the stage of of, of capitalist extraction at some point. Um, again, we're talking about foreign policy was at least the initial idea of this. But I mean, I think this, uh, it's getting interesting because we're talking sort of a theory of the world and what better way to approach it. Right. So, um, so I, I think don't know. the question is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. So the question is, should like a, a, a theoretical socialist United States do things like the Soviet Union did and support wars of national liberation, right? Mm-hmm. That's a sense, should it do something like that? And my answer would be no, because it's a historical answer. And again, I reject the sort of belief that a lot of these social societies had that you would be able to manage politics like that. I'm too much of a historicist for that. I'm too much of a historian. I don't think you could manage politics in that way. So no, I wouldn't support something like that. I think then then you would you would have to deal with these states with their leaders, which hopefully you haven't interfered with them, and hopefully that they are somewhat organically connected to what the people want, but you can't really control for that. So you just gotta hope, uh, and then deal with them uh, nor- normally and honestly. I, and then I would reject the notion that America that, that a lot of Americans have that states do things like mechanistically expand to fill, fill power vacuums. I think the United States is a country steeped in a particular form of Protestant universalism that actually helped give rise to what is a rather fantastic, you know, dream, and that you're going to be able to dominate the world. And when I think you read things like George Kennan's Long Telegram or how people today talk about China, what, what, what they're actually doing is reading the American desire for hegemony onto other countries. I think a lot of historical research has shown that Stalin, the most likely Soviet leader, not a good guy, the most likely Soviet leader to want to um, expand and do that sort of uh, imperialism was never intent on doing that. And, and you have to take what the historical research says, and it might actually be an American pathology to believe that you could do things like have global hegemony. I mean, that's okay. Con- it's contested history, but I'll, I'll grant you that there is historicism out there. You're part of that. Uh, the people that are making those arguments and, you know, we can, we can, we can get into the, the, the Stalin stuff, but, but again, it's, uh, it, it seems to me though, that you're still kind of, stuck though danny like at least from like a positive i mean you're perhaps you you're i'm comfortable also myself so i'm very sympathetic of being a critic and pointing things out but you're you you are a little stuck in the sort of way forward the planet's cooking capitalism's out there you can't manage things uh we should just lay back and hope for cooperation to emerge and a better world hopefully can come if we start fixing ourselves at home and redistributing wealth that's that's the vision more or less and what's your vision? 
My vision is go around the world overthrowing governments. No, 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 that's shoddy. No, 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 no. That's shoddy. That's shoddy. I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually much more concerned with sort of, you know, I do. I do Europe stuff right now. So like I alluded to, I just got back from Berlin uh, doing a lot on the on Ukraine. We can talk about what I think about Ukraine. I've done stuff on the on the podcast on this before. But uh, ultimately, you know, I don't see uh, my my main sort of, I guess, criticism of your approach, why I keep sort of coming back to this idea of cooperation on very narrow things like Europe and Ukraine, the war that's just broken out there. I could probably make some cases for for other places as well. Is that uh, I don't think that America is a force for good like Shadi. I don't think we're transforming the world in a better place. Like I said, I, I'm I'm generally quite pessimistic or you know uh, resigned morally on these things or try and really not uh, bring in moral categories into this because I think it actually clouds things. But you you have a dynamic world where things happen um, and try and sort of make sense of it and what's to be done. Uh, ultimately, you know, for example, on Ukraine, I, I'm, I'm struck by this idea that, I mean, the argument is fine. Let's pull, you know, Trump made it as well. Let's get out of Europe. We don't need to be in Europe. That's, it's, uh, you know, that's a security umbrella and we've created all sorts of perverse incentives and we shouldn't be there. I'm happy to have that conversation. I think it's a much more difficult conversation to have now, not difficult, you know, again, on moral terms, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's a more complex conversation to have now that there's a live war going on in Europe. But I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I think that uh, falling back on this idea that uh, we need to fix ourselves domestically and then sort of hope that all sorts of other weird things would happen. But well, you haven't answered my question, which is what, what's your plan? My plan right now is to actually is arm the Ukrainians. Keep on going as we've been going. Yeah, more or less, I think. And you know, I think climate yeah, I mean, change. I, climate- I would say that's I, not that great. Fine, but uh, I think it's more likely to happen that way, and it's best to here. How, how I put it like this: I think the role of uh, us is to try and avoid the worst, not to work for the best. That's always been how. how but I we've already been doing the worst. I mean, I mean, there's no, there's no, the way Americans we could do worse. Consume, we could do worse, which is ultimately built. <laughs> sure, you could always do worse. Yeah, but well, the, the way Americans consume is literally cooking the planet. Uh huh. And again, that is all undergirded by the American Empire. Now, but do you do you think that? Let me ask you this one then: Is it that it's how Americans consume, or is it how human beings in any similar situation would end up right. consuming? Then we have human nature arguments, and well, I just don't think that's really that's you don't not think, really well useful. I don't think you could get get at human nature. You're always humans are born into a culture. I mean, it, you, there's no permanent human nature. I just philosophically reject that. Okay, so and this is like I, I think you're going on the basically the realist theory of human nature, correct? Which is again forged in the fires of the 1930s. Which again, it's not always not. It's not only not the 1930s. It very rarely is the 1930s. So, so, so how, it's only how, been it once. How does change happen? Is it rationality? How, what, are we are we progressing no, through reason? Humans aren't rat. So what no, are we? Of course not. Okay. I, I think you you're 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 very much sounding to me like a political. You want like a like a like a parsimonious theory of human change, and I just don't think that's how things happen. 
in reality. You've got to have the judgment and the wisdom to respond to what someone like Jakob Erfurt, one of the first historians, like the, the moment that you have to be, you know, in, in the moment and the, the complexities of history. There's no theory of history. Mm -hmm. That is that that was the, the dream of modernity. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree opinion. with you on that. So, so, I mean, I, should we should, go ahead, Shadi? Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I love, first of all, I just want to say, I love this. I really, really, I think it's good because what we try to do on Wisdom of Crowds is get to first principles. And I think, you know, some of those are becoming, you know, more clear. We don't have to go into the in the nature of human nature, but on a more, um, one thing that did come up in, in some of you, as I was listening to some of your responses, Danny, is, well, so this socialist future, the more social democratic future that, you know, one might wish for, it doesn't seem like if if enough Americans really wanted that, presumably, and you've said in in various pieces, the left is today weak and ineffectual. But that's yes. not coincidental. It's that your views have not been able to capture enough popular support because presumably, if people shared your vision, who did of the Woodrow future, Wilson invest? Who did Woodrow Wilson invest during World War One? <laughs> Wait, sorry? Eugene Debs. I mean, there's been a bit who did Woodrow Wilson arrest during your World War One? Eugene Debs. I mean, there's been a concerted effort by the American state to do everything in its power to tamp down the left for a hundred years. It's not it's not a marketplace of ideas. And we're at the we're at the end of that process. Okay, but presumably okay, but let's be fair, the US doesn't generally arrest communists just for being communist today. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean. Look at, because um, yeah, the communists, they were destroyed in the 40s and the 50s. Come on. I mean, they were destroyed in the okay. 40s and the 50s. Come on. That's not, that's not the marketplace of ideas by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, the but entire we have. Cold War was okay, defined but we have, by literally destroying the American life. Okay, but right now. The project they're, okay. succeeded. Right now, yeah, there's right a relative now, degree oh, of intellectual freedom. Right. Socialists can advocate their positions. And I want to be clear, like Bernie is not a full on <laughs> socialist like Bernie would even. And he said he clarified this, that he envisioned something more more similar to Norway or Denmark and so forth. He wasn't talking like you about socialism in a more kind of historic, traditional sense where we start to get into like really fighting and combating capitalism as a kind of driver. I, I don't, I mean, maybe Bernie feels that deep down and doesn't feel he can articulate that, but even someone who did get a lot of support from Americans like Bernie was not advocating for ending capitalism. So I just wanna say like, what if it turns out to be the case that your fellow Americans don't actually want what you're proposing? And if you're part of a small minority, then at some point you have to respect that if the majority of Americans want some degree of capitalism to remain, it could be less like Bernie, and, and I, I support that fully, but um, but it would there would still be capitalism. So at some point you have to accept that unless you have a viable program for persuading a majority of Americans to envision a completely different um, economic framework Sure. I mean, I, I agree. I, I wish the American state didn't destroy the American left consciously and repeatedly for decades. Yeah. Okay, but I, now I, you I, have. It but even, now it doesn't even appear on the horizon of possibility. 
I right. mean, that is but, that is the, the United. I mean, I think the problem that we're actually facing is that throughout U.S. history, the way that the government has prevented class conflict was providing free land to people, and what it's essentially trying to do. I mean, capitalism is is facing a moment, right? It's trying to find new ways to allocate itself. In the past, it could invest in, in, in basically in land. Now it's trying to invest in cryptocurrency, but we're seeing that 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 these sorts of totally financialized assets don't actually work out. So we'll see what happens. But yes, I ultimately agree. It would have to depend on some. Sort sort of educationist program, because ultimately, I don't think you could impose socialism from above. I think that was about the 20th century demonstrated. You can't use authoritarian measures. They're, they're, they're oxymoronic to a socialist who would have to rest on a fundamentally democratic and legitimate basis. I don't think it's going to happen. I think maybe in a thousand years, we'll have historians look back and be like, oh, wow, the American state really fucked up doing that. The American state fighting the Cold War really fucked up getting rid of its entire left wing, but that's for the future historians to figure but if you out. Don't, but, but if you don't think it's going to happen until like 300 or even a thousand years, then I guess like I get back to this question of what do you actually want to see happen for the remainder of your and our lifetimes? Because again, if we're- Get rid of the bases, reduce the defense budget, re- re- reduce the discretionary defense budget to spend a lot more on social welfare, um, reduce the hundreds of military bases. Is stop getting in needlessly antagonistic fights with other countries. Stop doing things like funding the drug war. You know, very basic things that I think actually wouldn't require that much work to make the world better. Allow other countries to decide their own fates, deal with them in a more legitimate way, create actually democratic and actually legitimate international institutions, not things that essentially are velvet gloves of the iron fist of American and Western hegemony. That seems roughly reasonable. Okay. Okay. So one thing, and, and this is where maybe there might be some overlap between you and Demir, and I'm actually quite curious um, what what you think about this. And I think you won't like this argument, so I'm warning you ahead of time. Okay. <laughs> Which one of us? <laughs> no, I mean Danny, but I mean you won't like it either, Demir. But basically, um, you know, if we look at the period of American hegemony, and if we want to, you know, oversimplify and just date that, let's just say post post World War War Two until I don't know, like now the nineties, two thousands, whatever it might be, during that period, I would I would humbly posit the possibility that the world got better in in certain specific ways. The number of democracies. Um, increased exponentially. Measured by what? Freedom House? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, that's a, that's a measure. The most Cold um, or, War institution of all time. Or, or let's take the a political science scale. index, the, pol- the, the Polity 4 index, or varieties of democracy, yeah, I just the VDEM. All those types of things. But, what, yeah, okay. what, I mean, I, I just, I'm fundamentally what's... skeptical of those sorts of measures. I, uh, but so, like, okay. from a philosophical perspective. But okay, okay let's but, take them as legitimate. Okay, but sure. political scientists, to my to my understanding, there's four yeah. democracy measures that are used like regularly or at all, as far as I can tell. Freedom House, um, uh, VDEM, <laughs> Polity Four, and um, and the econo- sometimes economist intelligence unit rankings. I know you. Yeah, I know that you won't like that. Oh, possible. the economists, you say? Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure they don't have okay, any biases. But, oh, come Freedom okay, House. But, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Okay, well, what? But, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? Okay, but okay, I'm just telling you what political science. I don't think we should si- think in that way. I don't think we okay. should think in that way. Basically, okay, let's not let's not talk about these measures. Let's just talk about you know free and fair elections, where at least people have some say over who represents them in government. Those types of governments increased exponentially during the period of American hegemony. Does that not count? 
the fact that we have now, I mean, at least as of like 10 or 15 years ago, we had reached a point where we had multiple times more minimalist democracies. And again, we can acknowledge that there is an economic democracy, a certain level of social justice, economic equality, and so forth. And I realize that is a major objection that you've raised. But if we're talking- <laughs> Yeah, it's well, a new, no, new term, but yeah. Okay. No, sorry. no, but if we're talking, again, I'm talking here about um, freedom of expression, freedom to organize, freedom to protest, freedom, you know, uh, the freedom to vote for parties that are on the far left, that are Islamist, Salafi, socialist, crazy, whatever it might be. Those things matter to people. It actually affects yes. their lives in a tangible way. Those opportunities increase significantly if we compare um, the 1990s to the 1920s or the 1950s. And we were, I mean, we have to be able to make some judgments about whether something oh. is better according to a specific measure in one time period sure. compared to a previous time period. Would you say it was better that British and French colonialism in the former Ottoman territories in the 1920s was better than living in the Ottoman Empire in the 1880s? No, no, I wouldn't because there, I right, mean, right, exactly. That was, those it, were authoritarian it, it, orders where people did not have the right to vote in free and fair elections, and where people were subjugated. I mean, I think colonialism is just an, another another kind of authoritarianism. Right. So, would you say that? What would you say the differences between the eighteen eighty? Let's take out the nineteen twenties because that was a particularly low era. What would you say the difference between like the eighteen eighties Ottoman Empire and the national state era of today in the Middle East in twenty twenty two? Which would you say you would be better to live under? Saudi Arabia in twenty twenty two or Saudi Arabia in eighteen eighty? Well, it depends on on what measures. If we're talking about standards of living, and I know you won't like this measure, GDP per capita running water. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's better according to those specific measures today. If we're talking about basic freedoms, no 1880 Ottoman Empire would have been preferable. Yeah, far preferable. So I'm just saying these these things ebb and flow. So I, I, I not because I do think you're right about like, I like the, the inventions of modernity. I like things like running water. I like things like healthcare. That's a gigantic thing. Penicillin all these things. But but to answer your question beyond just like pointing out the ebb and flow, and it's not sort of this unidirectional progressive narrative, which I don't think it is, um, is that th th then you have to, um, and, and then shoddy, what I would say is you would have to engage in the counterfactual. So the question is, are the good things of the 20th century dependent upon American hegemony? And this is not a question that we can answer now because it, it relies on a counterfactual and counterfactual reasoning is very, very difficult to do. That, that's all I would suggest. So I think you're positing a necessary cause between American global hegemony and these developments that I, that I, that, that I do not accept just in the way that you framed it. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Um, Sorry, yeah, but that's just one on that though, like, uh, in your conversation with Glenn Lowry, you said something like um, that the, the that America's insistence on fighting the Cold War, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong in describing this, you see the U.S. as driving the Cold War dynamic more than the Soviet Union, relatively speaking. But that you you also acknowledge that oh, one yeah, of the reasons, particularly is, after 1953. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but then you also say if I recall that one of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed is because they couldn't compete with the U.S. during the Cold War and the U.S. was more aggressive. And then that ultimately 
led to the Soviet Union's demise, which makes me wonder, then the aggressive dynamic that the U.S. was promoting actually led to a good outcome because it led to the internal collapse. So is it better to live in Russia in 2022? So is it better to live in... Uh, is it better to live in Russia in 2022 in the Soviet Union of 1970? I would defer to Demir on that. I'm not. I'm. I, I'm not an expert on such matters. <laughs> and um, no, no. I mean, well, no, if you have Russians, the, oh yeah, the, no. And the 1990s were terrible. For, you don't have to go to 2022. Just go to 1995. Okay, but for then, example. okay, but then, but also, yeah, yeah. 2008 is different so than 1993. Good. Yeah, we but we have to pick a year that we're comparing to, Georgia. but but. But from the U.S. from the U.S. perspective, though, um, is it better? Well, that... now you're talking my language, Shadi. From the U.S. perspective, okay, well, it's no, absolutely I mean, better. I still... No, well, no, yeah, but that's yeah, but this is but this is I think the the actual point of departure here. And I mean, I think this is where I'm I'm sympathetic to Danny's arguments against you because you have a universal vision of the good, which I do think is quite contingent. I I don't I don't subscribe to it. I I, I like to push you on it because I think it's an important thing for you to sort of pull out. So I'm very sympathetic to where you're coming from, Danny, on this. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I do wonder, though, uh, to a certain extent, though, when we talk about socialism, um, to what extent uh, do you think that, that the Soviet Union succeeded in socialism um, and then was sort of defeated by a more vigorous capitalism? Um, what, what were the, the flaws? I, I, where, did it, where did it fail? What were the, you know, were there failures or was it just defeated? How do you, how do you parse all of sure. that? Sure. So, so again, this is really not my um, not my my field of expertise. Um, but my sense of it is that they they didn't didn't have the capacity to do central planning in the way that they wanted to for a variety of reasons. Um, so, no, I would say that they. I mean, they obviously didn't succeed because if they succeeded, then then it would have continued to exist in some in some way, shape, or form. Um, I actually think that uh the, the the western left from a pr- the perspective of 2022 not that you could have known this at the time it wasn't necessarily aided in the long run by the uh, advent of the soviet union mm. that's what i would say I, again I, I i'm not enough of an expert to go into like the details yeah. of why the socialist political economy failed okay but more more importantly i want to go because demir you kind of push this to the side but i think it is actually pretty essential i mean you said I mean, I said from the U.S. perspective, it's better that there is now just a Russia and not a Soviet Union. I mean, I, I would really sort of underscore that we live in a better world because there isn't a Soviet Union. No, that's, that's um, Poland, Hungary, um, what was previously East Germany. Um, we actually can point to very tangible Until examples that world of is ha- cooked by climate. I mean, until okay, everyone starts okay, consuming like enough. an American. Okay, but from now until whenever... I'm just saying it depends on how you measure these things. You know, well, it's, it's for... not like as clear as that. Okay, but from 19... Depends how you're looking at it, from what time scale. Of course, but if I'm looking at it from how have Poles... Um, how has it been for Poles or Hungarians or um, Germans, uh, um, some Germans at least, from 1990 until the present day? Have I mean, I think that... I'm comfortable saying that for Poles and what were previously East Germans, they are in a better situation in terms of basic freedoms um, now than they were in 1970 because the Soviet Union no longer exists. That's something that we can measure because 
um, regimes that were previously there are no longer there. That I mean, to me is positive. I, I'd give you, um, I'd, I'd give you the, the 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 materialist art answer to that, which is we pumped a shit ton of money, rebuilt the place, uh, and they didn't have to spend nearly as much as we were spending the whole time for an, on our military. So I mean, you know, it is really striking. Like I said, I just got back from Berlin. I mean, it's. Germany's a nice place to live. It's uh, it's it's very pleasant. Better than the U.S. <laughs> very very pleasant, very prosperous. So you know, I mean, that's an argument in in Danny's favor that we should just de demilitarize. If no, if, no, if, 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 the, if the theory is in fact that 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 there are no such things as as threats from abroad, that this is all okay. A- yeah. Well, so I I think that Demir, you like you raise an important point about external enemies. So Germans can demilitarize only because. There's a U.S. security umbrella, and this gets to, I think, a core argument that I that you've made, Danny. And again, I, I want to be as faithful to it as as possible. And I'll so I, I, this piece, and we'll include this piece. It was in the I think Foreign Exchange Substack um, that lays this out clearly, where you say that one of the most important projects to which leftists can dedicate themselves in 2020 and beyond is threat deflation persuading their fellow citizens that we're actually extremely safe and have nothing to fear from terrorists or Russia or China or whoever whoever the next enemy is. So I think this this seems to me to be a point of departure. Like, to what extent are there real enemies that require the U.S. to have a very large and seemingly disproportionate military budget? If we take your premise that there aren't real enemies that rise to that stature, then we can certainly make the argument that we should decrease our military budget and just gradually draw down and just be focused internally, so on and so forth. And this is where I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a is a sort of a hinge point, because I think your argument was plausible. Perhaps I wouldn't agree with it, but it was at least something that I could get my head around you know, two years ago or seven years ago or whatever it might be. Now, I just find it very hard to take in the argument that we don't have legitimate external enemies. Like, I think that Russia has showed- How does the Russian invasion- Russia, because Russia has showed itself- (laughs) Okay, but Russia has showed itself to be an aggressor. um, So the US has done that five million times. But okay, why, why well, I don't want to get into US moral security? equivalence. I don't. I don't. Not even moral uh, equivalence. How does that affect U.S. security, which is what the U.S. defense establishment does? How does Russian invasion of Ukraine affect U.S. security in any way, shape, or form? Because a, a world. Do you think they're going to invade Duluth? Duluth. Um, I presume that's in, not in America Ukraine. somewhere. Yeah, it's not in Ukraine. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, why Why should the average American, I mean, how does this affect the average American security, which is, again, defense establishments are not to remake the world or to prevent every decision well, that I one mean, might not well, now want you're, to see. Now you're sounding like a realist. That's not the only thing that I care about. As I've said, I care about making the world better. So I don't only care about American safety in De- Duluth defined or whatever by whom? it might be. <laughs> Sorry, defined by better defined by whom and who? What gives you the, the authority to say what the this brutal American military state should do around the world? And again, I mean, let's 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 bracket that. How does Ukraine affect American security? How does well? So a a world a world where 
um, sovereign democracies are invaded and ended and decapitated, or at least how does that affect American security? Unless you buy Woodrow Wilson's argument, which is wrong. But if you buy Woodrow Wilson's argument that the only way you could have global peace and prosperity is if every nation's a democracy, which is, I would say, ridiculous. I believe that that authoritarian (laughs) regimes are inherently aggressive dangerous could you say that about the u.s what what country has, no how many if you if you compare the amount of you interventions you should look at the military interventions project at tufts if you, if you compare the amount of military interventions that the united states has undertaken it is so much more than every authoritarian country in the world and it's not even close so according to that logic then democracy i mean it, it's close. not more than the soviet union during the cold war yes, it is. in terms of actually yes, it no, is. i mean no okay well <laughs> okay so you're actually so trying democracies to tell me that all the aggressive. That's that's so, what the argument is. I, I could look at it right now. I have the paper pulled right in front of okay, me. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. I, I am I am somewhat familiar with this literature. I I I'm aware of the military interventions. It's someone who like kind of you know chewed on Chomsky, and that those were my formative moments. And I I know these arguments. Um, but this but idea cl- that, these are I'm talking at scale. It's like it, it's exponential difference. It's it's not even close. According to your logic, then democracies are to be feared. No, no. If we're talking about okay, if democracies we're talking are about, to like, be liter- feared. That's for no, sure. Well, that's that's a whole different well, thing. But yeah, go on. Okay, if we're talking about like literal, I mean, so we're talking about countries that were. Or let's talk about settler colonialism. The, the, you could say the entire United States is unoccupied territory. Um. Uh, Okay, I don't know if that's going to be the most useful line of inquiry. I mean, I think what you could say, if you could say during the Cold War that the Soviet Union, unlike the United States, did keep Hungary, Poland, etc. under its thumb, absolutely. Then you could just make the same claim about what the United States did to Native peoples. Why why make that distinction? It's it's not unrelated. Okay, but so but during the Cold War, the countries that were under the American hegemonic, whatever you want to call it, empire, neo, you know, whatever people want to say there, um, we like, you know, whether it was West Germany or France, uh, you know, all the countries that were falling into our, our quote unquote sphere of influence, I would like to posit that those were better, those were better situations than all of the, the entire region what about under the the, Apache uh, Nation? behind the Iron what Curtain. The- I mean, if we compare... But what about the Apache people or the Cherokee people or any of those or those people, people who are genuinely subjugated by Americans, not like our friends in Western Europe? Is that really the most apt comparison? That doesn't seem like it to me. But if we're talking about the Cold War, I mean, yes, if we're talking about previous Native centuries. Native people still I- existed in the Cold War. No, Native people still existed throughout the Cold War. Okay, but I mean, um, that, that is like a subjugated peoples. That would be the natural comparison or, or incarcerated peoples or people like that, not like the British or the French Okay, but um, wait. But how do we get on this? I I I, I lost the thread. Who who Shadi? Are you saying that there's an equivalence between uh, uh, American Empire in Europe and American Empire at home? What? How do we get to that? No, no. Wait, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that there's no moral equivalency between uh, Soviet control and the Iron Curtain. So if we're comparing, right. Go on, Danny. What was Shadi saying? So could I just lay out what I think? Yeah. So Shadi was basically comparing. Um, Poland to France, right? 
And I was saying that relationship, the relationship that America had to France is not the equivalent one. It's not like the, the subjugation of France, like the Soviet Union subjugated Poland. Right. It would, you exactly, because we don't, we don't occupy European countries. The Soviet Union did that. We, we're no, the we one. only occupy this, our own country. <laughs> okay, but, but again, if I we're mean, just talking... We're, we're technically nations. <laughs> look, okay, but I'm talking about... Okay, we're talking about... If we're talking about Europe... And we're talking about a sort of artificial or actual dividing line to one degree or another. I'm simply saying that the parts of Europe that were under U.S. hegemony and or sphere of influence fared much better. So we didn't occupy European countries because Tell that to Guatemala. European. Okay. Tell European. That to Iran. No, Europe. I, I, Danny, Why I, I said Europe. Why limited to Europe, though? What? There's no reason to do that, logically. Okay. Okay. okay, but okay. How about this? How about this? Uh, this is why this doesn't really get me excited because I, I don't like to moralize <laughs> about this stuff. This is why I brushed it aside, Shadi, because we get I knew we'd get into this. But okay, you know, like it's uh, America is inherently more sympathetic to uh, you know uh, ancestral white uh, European peoples, so treats them better than it treats brown people in the rest of the world. Um, empire is variegated that way, right? Is that is that a fair yes. uh, thing? Okay, Shadi, okay, run with when that. Brown people agree. are pro. What brown people in the Middle East are protesting for democracy? Um, they are not calling on Russia or China to support their aims. They're always appealing to you, the conscience of Americans, to the the supposed, like whether or not it's real or not. They at least have this idea that we as Americans have the potential to be better because they understand that a world a world that would be dominated by Russia or China would be much worse for their democratic prospects that's not in the offing though that's not in the off this is what this is very frustrating to me about the DC conversation China neither China nor Russia have ever expressed any desire to dominate the world that is just not an empirical fact if you look at what China does with anything it invests in military capabilities to defend its very near abroad and it gives the BRI money to essentially any country. So that it has li- never okay, but it literally invaded it. a sovereign con- I, country unprovoked. What more? I mean, what more can you do than that? Like, oh, you're, now you're talking about Russia. Now you're talking about Russia, though, not China, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, I said Russia and China. If we want to put them yeah, as, okay. as, yeah. But I would okay. say also, I mean, if we look Could, at uh, Russia's involvement in Syria, the gen, like the gen, something close to a genocide. People can debate what to call it. But the mass atrocities where, you know, as you know, more than half a million killed. I mean, Russia is at the forefront of that. That is not this is not Russia defending its near abroad. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, China, China no, is also horrible. looking to make security inroads throughout, as you know, Africa, the Middle East. The idea that China is willing to content itself with just its near abroad simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny. We know what they are doing. No, it, it, it absolutely does stand up to scrutiny. It only doesn't stand up to scrutiny if you accept classical realist principles about human nature and what states do in the world. China has not displayed, it actually displays through its participation in international institutions that it very much considers itself part of this international system. And why the hell is the US in East Asia? Would you like the China to be in, in the Western hemisphere or in the Gulf of Mexico? It's so, it's so, these conversations to me seem so bizarre as someone who's not like in the DC world. I mean, it's, they're not even comparable. It's not about being part of the DC world. No, I mean, Russia has. Try to pose that to a Japanese person or a South Korean citizen. No, no, I mean, well, 
I think that if you if you talk but to many is, Japanese, then we get back to what is what is capable. Then, then what is what is the purpose of U.S. national security? Okay. What is security? Okay, but the, is the reason that the U.S. citizens. Yes, if I was the a reason, German, I would love the U.S. to make sure I don't have to pay for my military. That's awesome for me. So I can give social yeah, welfare to everyone. That's great. Because they don't want to be conquered by. They yeah, don't want right. Russia. Okay. You, you think Germany's afraid of being conquered by Russia? No, I think that's I, I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but in the UK? I, no, no, I am actually saying that there is a fear about Russia's role. I mean, Sweden, Finland, all all these countries that are somewhat close to various degrees to Russia actually feel there is a proximate threat. What does that have to do with U.S. national security, though? What does that have to do with U.S. national security? Because, well, first of all, we care about our democratic allies in Europe, presumably. We don't want them to feel like their border might be overrun at some point. I mean, no one thought, as you know, that people generally did not think that Ukraine would be invaded. It did turn out to be invaded. So clearly, okay, we sometimes have Okay, but then the question is, to... we, we live in a world of triage, right? Do we care more about our European allies or do we care more about Americans who are dying of toothaches that become infected? Sorry, what was the last thing? Americans dying of toothaches. Oh, do we care more about America dying of toothaches that become infected or easily? Okay, I'm sorry, things? I don't know exactly what you're. Which do we care to? more about? I, I, okay, I. These are choices that people make with how we spend okay, our I, money. That's I don't what know what the, we are making okay, choices about. But this how we idea spend our that if we don't give aid to Ukraine, that all of a sudden we're going to be diverting that aid to having a public option or a single payer uh, universal health care. You don't think that's a false choice? That's not how not America works. With the, you don't think not constantly giving the military industrial complex ways to make money would not affect American domestic political economy? It clearly would. But like this, this is the latest that... instantiation of, of a million incidences of this happening. So, so look, like, I, I, I really am respectful of your time, Danny, because I know you got to run, and I do sort of just, I don't know. Yeah, I actually do have to run. Soon. So, yeah, so sorry, I, I just want to. I'm I, happy to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean we can certainly continue this. You know, I, I. Um, I'll just say, you know, on the on the political economy and the military spending stuff, it, it's striking just now, like I said, being in Germany, talking to both people in government, but also getting a sense of, of you know, what the, the mood is right there. I, I, I think you are going to get some kind of remilitarization of Europe, uh, even more so if the United Definitely. States does go does start focusing elsewhere. So it's going to be interesting to see how their political economy, as you say, does get affected by this. But that, to me, still begs the question, though... I feel like what you and I haven't resolved is, you know, uh, the sense of, you know, what the path forward is. I mean, I sort of have a sense of what I'm doing in my path forward, um, not really to build a better world. I mean, this is something Shadi and I always talk about. Like, I, I don't really moralize about this, but it's sort of trying to grope your way to the next thing. I'm even more pessimistic than you are about the climate to the point of resignation, ultimately. So I don't really yeah, fall back. Yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> but, but I don't fall back on it and say, therefore, you know, well, the climate's going to the planet's going to get destroyed, so we can't do anything else, and we should just do less somehow. Anyway, but that's a that is a much deeper point to go, to get back into. I, I I just want to make that point about Europe, though, is that you know it seems to me that there are these larger logics, and fair enough, say call that realism about human nature, but there is something about perceived threats, whether Russia is a threat to Germany or not. It's certainly perceived that way at this moment with a live war going on a couple hundred miles away. Um, and there's going to be a remilitarization there. And that's going to change the dynamic 
for this part of the world that under the American security umbrella, which we should or should not have been providing, you know, that's historical contingencies, all sorts of arguments for it, um, it's going to change things. Um, and, and I agree with you, there's not like a really directional thing here. And I, I think it's much more interesting to think and talk about these things in an amoral way. I guess, I guess my only sort of feeling is that I think you might have, uh, a, well, I think you do have a, an embedded morality in your approach that, um, that I still haven't gotten my hands around somehow, I guess is my feeling after this conversation. And that's why we can yeah, save I guess that for the. Mm. <laughs> Go on, Dennis. Yes, perfect. Yeah. yeah, perfect. I mean, no, 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 uh, no. Let's let's save that for because that's a, a bigger conversation. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I, I just want to say, Denny, like I thought, I hope you enjoyed this. I actually thought this was, oh, was awesome this and stuff. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I love um, it. It's amazing. And I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so when I joked with you over email when we were inviting you, and I said um, this will be a somewhat epic, that's what you know, somewhat epic conversation. <laughs> that's what we're hoping for. I mean, I was just saying that. I think it did turn out to be somewhat epic. So thank you for for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Happy to come back again. I've actually got to run right now. Yeah, yes, to yes, please. Some late form, but thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to come back. Great, talk yeah, soon. Great, bye, Danny. Okay, bye. 